0: Well, I'd like to speak tonight about intensive retreat. There was a Calvin and Hobbes. Now, in the first little picture here with Calvin and Hobbes, um, Calvin is sitting in a big armchair watching television, complaining, there's nothing good on TV. And the father walks in the room and says, then turn it off and calvin turns around to talk to his father with this expression of what do you mean he says turn it off you mean i should just sit here staring at a blank screen all day and then in the next in the next picture there's the the father Throwing him out the out the door into the backyard, <laughs> and Calvin, in the following frame, he's kind of out there in this beautiful backyard, and the the frame is, oh, <laughs> and leaves. I like this cartoon. <laughs> Sometimes we really get into a rut, a rut of stimulation, a rut of entertainment, and even when it isn't what is of the greatest importance to us, and it may not even be entertaining, sometimes it's hard to make that step out of the pattern. You all know that I attend a lot of retreats. Um, I've had over seven years in silence, and that doesn't count the time I spent with with gurus and with um, monastic life, um, except for the, the silent part of the monastic life, which was the small component. I love silent practice. But when people hear that, they often react rather shocked. Um, Even if I just say I'm going to go on a four-month retreat this summer, which to me seems like a very short period of time. (laughs) People look like their mouth often drops open and with complete confusion as to what do you do? Why would you want to attend a silent retreat? How? Don't you go crazy? And then the question often comes, what do you get out of it? Which I always find to be a rather amusing question. What do you get out of it? We do so much in our lives to accomplish, to get, to gain, as though this accumulation of who knows what, accomplishments, possessions, um, status, um, accumulated days in retreat, <laughs> somehow means something in our, in our world, in our culture. Can we do something and not expect to get anything out of it? Wouldn't that be radical? But it does raise a very simple question, which is why sit a long retreat? Now, a long retreat could be just a four or five days if you've never spent more than a day in silence. Then five days or a week will be a long retreat for you. Um, When I was um, teaching, in some communities they usually only maybe do one-week retreats. So if I offer a ten-day retreat, it's called a long retreat. You know, everything is relative. People who usually sit a one-month retreat will say a three-month retreat is a long retreat. So yeah, it's, all, it's all very um, relative. Uh, but many of you have sat retreats. And I would like to ask you, why do you sit retreats? What do you find the value to be? Would somebody be willing to share?
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, isn't it a relief? to just be, and to not be running errands, and doing this, and doing that, and fulfilling all these demands, and blah, blah, blah. not not have a to-do list. You know, on your retreat, you don't wake up in the morning and write your to-do list and check things off. You're freed from that construction.
1: Barbara? Um, for me, it was just an incredible sense of, well, there was- Um, but it was real safety. Yeah. It was just safety to be and to be taken care of, and yeah. just let come up whatever comes up, and everything is perfect. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, that's actually that quality of safety is one thing that is valuable, even if somebody attends a retreat and doesn't meditate at all. Now, usually that doesn't happen. People go to retreats to meditate. But I actually think it's valuable just to be in a safe environment. And often it will take me a few days to adjust mentally because I'm so used to locking the doors, locking my car, closing up this and that. And on retreats, we just take the precepts. We just commit to not harming, not stealing, and that's it. Most retreats don't have doors that lock. And I've never experienced any problem on a retreat like that, you know, in terms of concern for safety or for the well being, psychologically, spatially, possessions, anything. And that can be a tremendous relief to kind of let down that guard that we so often hold up. Other comments? Bill, please.
1: Mm-hmm. I've had I to go on a retreat uh, at least once a year. Mm-hmm. And I do it as a gift to myself. Mm-hmm. Lovely. I sometimes have gone
0: You may be using it in a Hindu way
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, lovely.
0: lovely. yeah, there's so much that we can realize in the silence that it's rarely realized when we're when we're doing so much every day that requires our our uh, preferences to be stimulated, our abilities to be activated, our service, our um, thoughts, our plans, our um, uh, discursive mind, that we, we bring up so much in daily life. Um, and there's another kind of clarity and there's another way of knowing ourselves. Um, that beyond all of the things that we do and the ways that we manifest socially. It's incredible to see ourselves. Some teachers describe this quality of being naked, naked awareness, um, a, a, a kind of vivid knowing, a deep realization of who and what we actually are. Other comments from people who've attended retreats? Has it been difficult for anyone? Oh, go ahead, Paul.
2: It's kind of short-lasting, but I know every time I go on a retreat, the days after the retreat, I'm usually just floating on a cloud. Hmm. Know, very, you know, very
0: enjoyable experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joy is a huge part. Sometimes the joy comes because we were suffering on the on the retreat, but we bared the suffering, and sometimes the joy comes because there was just pleasure and joy and. Lightness. It's interesting on retreat, we understand very often, we understand really w- what the source of happiness and joy is, and that it's not pleasure. You know, we find a very deep resource for joy that comes in the capacity to let go, that comes in our clarity, that comes in the development of concentration and wisdom, that comes in, in that realization of our, of, our, of our growth and the purity of our minds. So there's, um, there we we often get in touch with a much more reliable source for our happiness. Some people find retreats to be difficult sometimes, and some don't. But we can feel joy either way.
2: Truth. I find them difficult. <laughs> um, I think initially I was drawn to retreat, longer retreat practice, in hopes of peace. And calm and quiet, and it's certainly calm and quiet outside, but I have found that um, penetrating myself isn't always fun. <laughs> and, um, i found again and again, I, I sort of wrestle with my demons. You know, I see that mm-hmm. what was it, Mark Twain said um, he suffered many tragedies in his life, most of which never happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, I create all this shit and then I really get to see it, that, that it's my creation. And sometimes it's acutely painful yeah. You know, to really enter that and get stuck with it for days. <sighs> Um, And I feel that, I guess it's a superstition, that this will strengthen my practice, that by shying away from it, I'm certainly not uh, growing in any meaningful way. I'm not one of the people who floats on the <laughs> for days while I'm there or when I come home. It's yeah. Usually I'm physically uncomfortable, my butt gets really sore, and my psyche gets sore. Yeah. I can see that I'm, I'm very invested in being non-confrontational, and I, I do a lot of contortions to avoid confrontation confrontation with people outside of retreat. I can't confront anybody in the retreat, so I went up confronting myself and a lot of that psychic gymnastics that goes on yeah. in the day-to-day, so i totally resonated with what you said, Leanne. I can drop yeah. not just the doing and the going of the running errands, but I can drop a lot of the
1: Gymnastics.
2: Yeah, that inner man. And then I get to confront the source of the gymnastics and the fearful little boy inside that's trying to protect himself. Yeah. So it's very powerful, but it isn't always
1: very sweet. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Sometimes, um, you know, sometimes. I hear people say that uh, retreats, it was a rich experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, because there are some retreats that, that I, and I wouldn't hold the, the, the view that every retreat will always be difficult. Um, some people do tend to do a lot of work on retreat, you know, and really face those inner demons and really work with them really clearly and have a tremendous inner growth that comes through that. Um but it does seem as though um, some the each retreat has a different character and um and there are different tendencies but they're never always they're never always always as particularly.
1: <laughs> but but it's, a, it's a necessary
0: part. It's a process that you go through, yeah. It's a process, but it's the speed.
1: It's like re entry of the space shuttle or something where you feel the tiles blowing
0: off. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know. Um, there is a, it's true, you know what your guys are saying. There, there is a process of settling in, just as there's a process of coming out of retreat. Um, but um, th- what the, only pop, the, only, the only part that I, that I would disagree with just is that it's always going to be that way, because there, it, does, it does change. You know, the same. It's kind of like you know, when before you started meditating, you'd have kind of like something would trigger it, and you'd get angry, and you'd be angry for so long, maybe say five days. And then, you know, it still triggers you a few years later, but maybe you're only angry for one day or two days. And then after a while, you see the anger faster and you kind of get over it. So it's kind of like as our practice develops, you know, very rarely is something just all of a sudden completely different when we're working with our patterns and our adjustments and the way of working with things. But uh, a huge difference of how, of, how, of how difficult and painful retreats are. Shifts as our practice develops, because we start to know a lot more. We react differently to things. Uh, we usually don't react too much. We usually have a lot more equanimity as we see even the sense of humor. Like even just knowing, okay, this is okay. It's you know three days, okay, and it's like, <laughs> and and it ends up shifting um, the process. So fundamentally that at some point I would not be surprised if at some point in the future you come back to me, and maybe it'll be 10 years, but come back to me and say, you know, these retreats are fun now! (laughs) Who knows? But um, it is wonderful to be able to go through a process and to be okay entering into a process that may be painful and not demand that it be pleasant. Um, Because I can't tell you that your retreat's going to be fun. Almost everybody's first several retreats are hard because we have to face all those demons. And it's only after we know them, and it's only after we've wrestled them down that we start to get a lot of space around them and they tend to disturb us less. And then we just kind of see them really quickly and they dissolve. So there's a there's so almost always people have to work for the first few retreats, but it's fun. It's okay. It's rich work. It's um, <laughs> it's rewarding work. <laughs> so there are though a lot of different reasons why people would undertake a retreat and different values that are um, you know that retreats are used for, and sometimes it's very simple just because we are tired, and we need a real vacation. And sometimes going on a holiday isn't really a vacation. I mean, it can be exhausting to go to the beach. You have to swim, you have to put on sunscreen, you have to whatever, you know, sometimes do all sorts of things. And we may not be resting the mind. Sometimes people will go on a hike or something and be carrying all of their worries with them into that experience. Maybe be sailing a boat, but be talking with their buddy about all the things that are bothering them. So sometimes even if we go on a holiday, we may have taken our body on a holiday, but if we don't know how to free our minds from those habits, then we're not really resting deeply. So retreat gives us an opportunity to rest the mind, to rest the identity construction, to rest all of those patterns that keep us engaged socially. So the quality of rest and holiday is a big part, I think, of doing retreats. Um, And it isn't just to say it's a holiday. I mean, it's probably wrong to compare it to going to the beach. Um, But I think we need a holiday from ourselves sometimes. Maybe our holiday from our patterns, a holiday from our identities, a holiday from our habits. And that holiday from our habits, that separation from all of the talking, all of the socializing, that keeps perpetuating an image of ourselves, it gives us a new perspective on who and what we are and what matters to us. This can help us Relax, it can help us recharge our batteries, it can help us rejuvenate ourselves, it's very good for our health um, and to recover from stress and the impact that stress has on us. We also find that when we attend retreats, our practice inevitably deepens. Whether we're developing mindfulness or concentration or equanimity or patience, whether we're working with um, a uh, noticing impermanence or noticing emptiness or noticing learning this or that or investigation. Practice deepens when we give attention to it. It's inevitable. I mean, at, at most, how long do you practice in your daily practice? One hour, two hours a day? But when you go on retreat, you're getting a much deeper dose. Maybe you're practicing 10 hours a day. So that in itself takes the practice to a much deeper level and lets people see more subtle aspects of the mind. Rumi, there's a poem from Rumi um, that says, Which is worth more, a crowd of thousands or your own genuine solitude? freedom, or power over an entire nation. A little while alone in your room will prove more valuable than anything else that could ever be given you. Most religions have some form of a Sabbath, a day of rest, a day of quiet, a time to stop the busyness of working and running around and to turn our attention to the inner life to consider what is of value to us, what do we really appreciate, to celebrate life, to rest, relax, rejuvenate, and in some religions to realize God. When we're busy in our activities in life, in work, in family, in running here and there, in accomplishing our to-do lists, we very often have a sense of self-importance. In fact, many people feel self-important when they can complain that they're too busy. I have so much on my plate, I'm in such demand, my calendar is so complicated. Da, da, da. Um, and sometimes that sense of, I've got so much to do, I'm really important, I'm not forgotten, I have a place in the world, it can fill up our lives to the point that we forget to reflect and we don't know how to slow down. Can we take some time to just not be rushing towards our goals? So often we're identified with our work and our activities and our jobs and our roles. But you know, work is never done. Neosho Kempo Rinpoche said, activities are endless, like ripples on a stream. They only end when you drop them. Human moods are like the changing highlights and shadows on a sunlit mountain range. All activities are like games children play, like castles made of sand. View them with delight and equanimity like grandparents overseeing their grandchildren or a shepherd resting on a grassy knoll, watching over his grazing flock. Can we be that relaxed with our activities? Or do we get obsessed with trying to make things a certain way? But no matter what it is we want to have in our life, to get, to complete, to achieve, the work will never be done. Will you ever have the best house? You know, there's always remodeling. And then is remodeling ever done? I mean, it can last a long time. What about the garden? Is the garden ever done? Is it ever finished? Is it ever right? It's perpetual work. (laughs) And the car? You know, you you, you get one car together and then it needs a little tweaking here, a little polishing there, a little armor-alling there, and then before you know it, there's a new model out there to get. These things are never done. Who really has enough time enough success, enough prestige, enough money. You know, we think that we're going to have more time by getting new technologies, but does it ever work? You know, has the computer actually given you more time in your life? It hasn't in mine. It occupies more time. Even the vacuum cleaner. I remember reading um, an article, or no, it wasn't an article, it was one of those... um, history shows on evolution of technology in the home. Um, I think it was the History Channel or something. (laughs) And it was talking about the vacuum cleaner and how much time women spent cleaning the house before the vacuum cleaner and after the vacuum cleaner. And the vacuum cleaner was touted as this efficient thing that was going to make women's lives easier in the home, but it actually increased the expectation of how clean a carpet needed to be and increased the amount of time that the average woman spent cleaning the house. And they went through all these different home technologies with the relationship of technology in the home to time. Um, What about graphics? Like um, um, Maureen makes us these fabulous flyers, and, and we're very fortunate to have Maureen, who has the graphic skills to make the flyers, and Barbara, who has the graphic skills to make us these wonderful cards. But do you know how to do these? I don't actually have the skills to do these, and yet the expectation is to produce these. Now, it wasn't very long ago, I mean, when I started teaching, that it was a perfectly acceptable flyer to just kind of photocopy one and to cut out a picture and to stick it on it. And it wasn't very long before that when it was perfectly fine to take a marker and to handwrite a flyer, and people would come to an event like that. You know, that wasn't very long ago that that was acceptable, but do you think we could get away with marker flyers and put them in the bookstores and places and have people come to our events? I don't think so. As the technology changes, our expectations are affected to match it. And there's this increasing, 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 um, system. Just as Neoshal Shulken Rinpoche said, activities are endless, like ripples on a stream. They only end when you drop them. Now, I'm not saying we drop all our flyers. Let's put them on posters. <laughs> Let's get them out there. <laughs> but, um, but it is interesting to see how endless activities really are. Our life can be filled with a lot of conflicts and demands and projects that pull us. But do they pull us to the point that we forget the inner life, that we forget what's really important? So we take time in our lives, we move back and forth from the busyness of activity, the social production, the compassionate action, the engagement with the world, the mindfulness in our life, the observing of how we interact, in society. That's all a hugely important part of mindfulness practice. But we also take some time in retreats to drop the activities and to have that quiet reflection, that contemplation that is not so production-oriented, so that we let ourselves just meet ourselves, being ourselves as we are, without accomplishing anything. Can we just sit with ourselves quietly in a safe environment doing nothing but knowing the experience of sitting, breathing, and thinking. It can be a great relief just to release the demand for productivity of this expectation that whatever we do we're going to need to gain something from it. Now, sometimes students, before they do a first retreat, ask for an interview. It's fairly common. And most of the time, people are are very shy and a little afraid and kind of nervous before they've attended their first retreat and ask a lot of questions. And it's I, I really enjoy meeting with people before they've attended their first retreat um, because there's such a freshness and uncertainty. What's it going to be like? And often people assume that it's going to be difficult, but this really isn't known. There often are adjustments that we have to make. But sometimes, you know, it's, it's weird, but some people they drop right into retreat and it's just like home to them. And some people struggle and work and really have to be courageous to face their patterns and their their processes. So I encourage people to allow it to be however it is. It may be a challenging struggle and it may be a rewarding struggle. And it may not be a struggle at all. It may be a joyful pleasure. Retreats can manifest in so many ways. I've had some very difficult retreats, and I've had some blissful, easy, smooth retreats. But I would say that when I reflect on my life, some of the happiest moments that I can identify have occurred in the silence of retreats. Some of the most exquisite states of peace and happiness and joy have occurred then. We have to sometimes explore what it means to be happy and what do we need to be happy. And when we're in retreats and we experience happiness, we understand that it has nothing to do with all the accumulations and the busyness and the external things that we do in our lives. Sometimes people do retreat practice to prepare to die may sound morbid, but it's actually a really wonderful motivation. Can we take some time away from everything that we usually know and just work with whatever arises in our hearts, in our minds, our attachments, our anguish? And sometimes we really do just rest, and it's amazing to see what happens when we let the mind rest. I don't think we have to do a lot when we go on retreat. There is a movement into retreat that may be just enough, because to enter into retreat, even for a couple of days, we have let go of a lot of the activity and the identification. The illustration that's given is that, you know, sometimes when people have cows in a field, they don't let the cows um, graze the field all the time. In fact, when I was staying in England, I stayed on a farm that had cattle grazing on the fields, and they would periodically block off different portions of the field to allow it to rest. And what was interesting was they didn't do anything. They didn't like plant a particular something to renew the soil. They just let that portion of the field rest. And if it wasn't being grazed by the cows, then the seedlings that were in the the seeds that were in the soil itself, they would get to flower. And they would come to um, to to grow, and there'd be extraordinary wildflowers and grasses, and and it would be life would just happen and appear just because it wasn't constantly being gnawed on. And sometimes I think that's what we let give for ourselves when we go on retreat. We just let ourselves rest, and then we observe what flowers out of us, what. Arises, what manifests when we're not constantly being gnawed on by our duties and our responsibilities? Often, what manifests for people is a sense of creativity and clarity. And so, interestingly, even though I'm saying, okay, don't don't expect anything out of it, almost everybody says that they are more productive and more um, more filled with love or gratitude or Peace or calm or clarity um, after a retreat. In fact, sometimes when I was writing my book and I got stuck, then I um, I would just sit and spending some time. Sometimes it would be a whole day. You know, if I just sat in retreat, then the clarity would be there. To, uh, it would, the clarity would arise and I'd understand the chapter. Sometimes there were parts, there were times in the editing of the book when I didn't do a formal meditation retreat, I went into a writing retreat. Because in the complexity of daily life, you know, answering emails and telephone calls and meeting people every day and doing this and that, it was like my mind didn't have the space to hold the whole book. And there was a point in the editing process when I had to reconstruct the chapter. And I had to have the whole book in my mind, and be able to move things around, and I could not do it in daily life. Even if I blocked out whole days when I was alone, my mind, it was like it, was like it just didn't fit there. And so I just went off to a personal retreat center where I could spend um, two to three hours a day writing, and ten hours a day meditating, and there was plenty of space in my mind to hold the whole book and I could just very clearly see the whole thing and boom, 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 just do what needed to be done, whereas I was struggling to do it here. So it wasn't a question of the timing. You know, I had more than the two or three hours in daily life I could carve out of my day, but I couldn't carve that space out of my mind here. And so there are times when our tasks ask a little bit more of a stretch of our minds and sometimes we need the silence and the meditation to empty that space for us. I'm not suggesting you go into retreat and write a book. I'm just saying that there is a quality of spacious clarity that often comes through the meditation process. And people often find that that does and end up supporting a lot of the things that they value to do afterwards. Rumi said drum sound rises on the air. It's throb, my heart. A voice inside the beat says, I know you're tired, but come, this is the way. Sometimes I think we like, need to let our hearts call us into the practice, call us into a deep rest. And when I say rest, I don't necessarily mean that it will be easy because sometimes rest is the hardest thing we have ever done. It may even require such courageous effort that it feels like every cell of our body, every cell of our being is, um, is um, working just to sit and breathe. It can be amazing how much energy um, it takes and yet also how much energy the silence gives to us. What should we expect on retreat? This is something that many people ask me before they attend a retreat. And I would suggest just expecting it to be however it is. There's no point in planning what's going to happen. There's no point in saying, I know it's going to be like this because I heard about a retreat that was like this, or I know it's going to be like that because I had that experience on the previous retreat. But to simply let it be how it is. We can't decide, now this is going to be my impermanence retreat, and I'm going to see the impermanent nature of all phenomena. Or this is going to be my time for grieving, to process the loss of somebody that I loved. Well you know, we don't know what's going to be happening for us and we can't really predict or control that. So instead we just open and we receive what is actually happening for us. It can be amazing as a teacher to hear interview after interview after interview after interview and how many different kinds of experiences are happening in the same room. Um, Sometimes somebody will be crying and crying and there'll be just tremendous tears of anguish and they'll be saying, what a wonderful retreat this is. And there'll be other somebody who's experiencing peace and bliss and saying, what a wonderful retreat this is. (laughs) Often what is happening is of less importance than how we're relating to it. Another verse from Rumi. Rumi. I saw grief drinking a cup of sorrow and called out, it tastes sweet, does it not? You've caught me, grief answered, and you've ruined my business. How can I sell sorrow when you know it is a blessing? It's helpful not to compare one retreat from the next. Will it be bliss? Will it be a struggle? Because we just can't predict what's going to occur. And we can't create an agenda for what's going to happen. So we let the practice unfold. It's a good strategy just to want what we get, rather than try to get what we want. Then we'll be happy. Just want whatever we get. There is a, there are variations of ways of structuring retreats. So they won't every retreat that you attend will not always be the same. Even if you go back to the same teacher, sometimes I vary the schedule, sometimes I vary the instructions, um, and different teachers will have different styles of teachings. But basically, from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to sleep, you're meditating and you're alternating between sitting meditation and walking meditation and often also on retreats standing meditation or reclining meditation. I always include the four postures. Sometimes we'll um, make eye contact and just keep the silence but permit the eye contact and sometimes we'll look down and not make any eye contact at all and really maintain more of a restricted field of the senses. Those styles vary but the basic gist of it is is to allow ourselves to just be with our own experience. This can be a great relief. We don't have to smile. We don't have to put on a happy face. We also don't have to gr- frown and grimace. We can just be. Feel our feelings without judging. Allow them to be as they are. Sometimes, though, a retreat can look a little odd to people. Usually we are off into the forest, like the retreats that we'll have are all in, um, in the Redwood Forest, and we'll have the centers to ourselves, and we'll be really very much secluded, so it'll be quite easy and lovely. But I've sometimes attended and taught retreats at places where some outsiders would pass through the retreat. And I was sitting a retreat um, in New York one time, and some kids from the neighborhood um, kind of would pass through the retreat center on their bicycles. And one time these kids came through on their bicycles, they were about 10 years old, and they looked at each other as we were you know, sitting and walking and reclining out, outside, because it, you know, it was a beautiful day. Um, they said, they look dead. <laughs> and then the other boys said, maybe they're anesthetized. <laughs> So sometimes it can be a little odd, but you know, we get used to it. And sometimes people are afraid of the silence, and they think, I'll never be able to stay silent. I can't do it. And it's amazing how easy it is. I've actually rarely had, some, had people on retreat that actually found it difficult, although I have to admit that I did on my first retreat, it was a 10-day retreat, I did at one point find the silence really hard. And so what I did is I went into the bathroom. There was one single bathroom that I could close the door and be alone in. And I stood in front of the mirror and I had a little conversation. (laughs) And then I felt just fine. (laughs) And I've been okay since. So for 25 years, it's been okay. (laughs) But it is interesting how sometimes just being in silence, there's this little bubbling up of, I've got to speak. And, um... You just find a bathroom, it's it's okay. (laughs) But I think it is important if we do feel fear to not let fear stop us, but to let it intrigue us. Because fear and excitement are very similar kinds of emotions. And it doesn't take too much to shift a little fear into just a little curiosity or a little excitement to let that energy not stop us, but move us forward into our practice, into our path. From Rumi again, Essence is emptiness, everything else accidental. Emptiness brings peace to your loving, everything else disease. In this world of trickery, emptiness is what your soul wants. Now when we... um, Practice in retreat, we usually find that our senses are clarified and we're um, uh, very attuned to the vividness of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches. Everything seems alive and vibrant. I've seen people sit down and for 10 minutes watch a little slug kind of slither down a path or sit and be fascinated by a kind of a beetle and the way that it crawls and turns and looks at its head. Because we're so slowed down that different things interest us. Now that may sound peculiar or crazy, but actually how it's quite interesting to see how animals um, move and live. Um, I've seen people um, you know, just experience a sunset or a sunrise more vividly than ever before, or to smell the smell of grass, or to listen to the sound of insects in just a way that feels like it makes, it it enlivens life, it connects us with life. But this intensity, that allows us to sit and watch a beetle for 10 minutes transfixed can also get a little out of balance and sometimes we can lose a little perspective. Um, There was um, one of those email lists where somebody had asked, um, uh, does anybody have any advice, I'm attending my first retreat and somebody wrote back and said, this is the advice. Do not take seriously anything your mind tells you about yourself or the other retreatants or teachers during the first three days or so. I always have an unbelievable amount of projection going on after silence falls. I can't do this. The other retreatants dislike me. I'll never get any concentration. Yada, yada, yada. Just wait and let it quiet down. By day four, I'm usually in the clear at the end of the retreat, I get to find out that all the things in my mind that that my mind was saying were way off base. So I think this advice was very nice, and it was basically saying don't take our thoughts too seriously, because when we're in silence, we don't have the same markers that define who we are socially and that regulate interactions. And in that space, judging often fills the gap. It's a well-known phenomena. That's called, lovingly, (laughs) it's been dubbed yogi mind. And everybody is vulnerable to yogi mind. So we offer tremendous ease of forgiveness when people get a little bit out of perspective on retreat. Like some little thing will blow up into some huge reaction and then we'll realize, oh, how sensitive I am. How was that reaction? And we start to just look into it. So the yogi mind is not a problem, um, so long as we don't take it too seriously. And all teachers are very familiar with it. People sometimes ask how long they should start do do their first retreat. And I think it doesn't matter. I've known people to have their first retreat be a three-month retreat and love it. But I don't usually recommend that. I generally recommend three to five days for a first retreat because that's long enough to drop in, but not so long that you've had to totally change your entire lifestyle. Every moment of mindfulness is significant. And I find that even short weekends and short retreats, three to five days are good even for very experienced practitioners because they let us drop in again and again to the silence. They're not just for beginners. I think it's important to do retreats regularly. Some people will do one a year. Some will do one a quarter. Um, People will vary depending on their lifestyle and what their commitments permit. But don't wait until you have ideal conditions. Don't procrastinate when you want to do a retreat. Just sign up and do one. Usually, when I finish one retreat, before I leave that retreat, I sign up for my next one because life just gets too complicated and fills in all those little squares on my calendar. So I like to, when I get a new calendar, the first thing I do is I block out retreats, and I make sure when I leave a retreat that I have another one on my calendar. Otherwise, it's too easy to procrastinate. I want what's most important to me to be put there, to be put forward. I just want to end with a few practical suggestions for how to prepare for a retreat. And I think it's helpful to sit a little bit extra in the week before because it really helps to reduce the sleepiness in the first couple of days of retreat if we've just sat, instead of one time a day, sat two times a day. It just has a tremendous um, influence on that sleepiness. We, We kind of warm up a little bit. But sometimes it just doesn't happen and in order to take the time off, to go on retreat, we're working extra, and we kind of come to this screeching halt. Well, so that's what we've done, and we just have to go through the process of settling again. It's helpful to stretch the body. It's helpful to take care of our commitments, to finish up unfinished business to um, leave our laptops and our cell phones at home, to call our family so that we've taken care of the things that could pull our minds out of retreat. And we know that things are just settled and that anything that has to be done will be done when we come back. When you're packing, don't bring a soccer ball. You don't need a bicycle. You don't need a lot of books. You don't need to bring an easel and painting supplies. You don't need entertainments, even if they're wholesome and beautiful activities. It's a time to be who you are without your toys. You'll have the mind to watch, so don't worry, you won't get too bored. It's not that it's wrong to do any of those things. It's actually okay. I have a lot of students who you know, like to bring a little piece of paper and do a little sketching. That's not a problem. They like to do a little Tai Chi. It's not a problem. Um, but I wouldn't plan on other projects to occur during the Rich Treat time. There's no need for makeup. There's no need for perfumes. There's no need for fancy clothing. Because, you know, everybody's going to have their eyes closed and it is important to bring to do a little shopping beforehand to buy fragrance free shampoos and lotions because if you're sitting there and your senses get really um, alivened and vibrant, and the person next to you has on coconut oil, you're sitting there meditating on coconut oil. It's hard to even find the breath over some perfumes or aftershaves or, or conditioners. So most retreat centers and all the retreats that I teach um, require and, and and really ask people to come with scent-free products because otherwise you may have gotten used to the strawberry smell of your shampoo, but um, the rest of the room might be meditating on the strawberry smell of your shampoo. <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of a, that, that, requ- uh, that for most people requires a little bit of shopping and a little bit of patience because, you know, I have yet to find a nice, scent free shampoo and conditioner. So if anybody knows of one out there, let me know because I've tried like five of them and I don't like any of them. So, it's a renunciation practice. It's a gift to the other meditators. <laughs> but, um,. But that's important. And also bring a thick zabutan. People often need to buy one because sometimes uh, retreat centers have hardwood floors and you don't want to be cold. Why not be comfortable if you can? Bring a shawl for warmth. And most retreat centers don't have coffee. So it's really, if you're addicted, either bring a stash or wean yourself off the week before or you're going to be experiencing withdrawal symptoms along with being tired the first few days. You know, it's fine if you want to do it that way, but you could also, you know, prepare. And don't worry if there's something that you really need. If there's a medical need, it will be, it will be taken care of. When you come out of retreat, I just suggest that you do it slowly. That you don't rush into activities and daily life. You know, you don't have to answer all your emails. I've had people race out of retreat and have planned a dinner party that next night. And so they rush to the store and have to do all this cooking. You know, let yourself come out of retreat slowly so that, you know, you can still go to work. That's not a problem. You're functional. But, you know, don't pile on a lot of activity. Activities because the rich thing about the retreat is by coming out of a retreat, you're clear, you're calm, you're quiet, and you will be able to understand a lot more of your patterns and the way you interact with your relationships, your family, your friends, your work if you just go a little slowly so that you can process those interactions as they're occurring. So, I really recommend for the next few days that you have a normal schedule but a light schedule, you know, a light. Kind of schedule. I'll just end with a poem um, by a student named Milton Townsend just walking back and forth I walk across this beautiful desolate beach again and again walking back through myself erasing my footprints with each new footstep as the tide comes in back and forth over and over, until not one single individual footprint remains, but a path through the bleached litter of broken shells and tattered heaps of dry black seaweed, walking the beach into existence, just walking and the tide comes in. Well, I want to thank you for your patience tonight.
2: Thank you for listening.